welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. It's a joy to be here today with you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. If you would, please turn your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 5. James, chapter 5. We are rapidly approaching the end of this letter to the church. Uh, Hopefully uh, next time, uh, that will be the last message in the book of James. I'd greatly appreciate your prayers as uh, there's conversations and uh, prayer about what would be best for the church to, what book of the Bible would be best for the church to move through together in the next series. So I appreciate your prayers for that. Um, I'm really excited about what the Lord has for our church in the year to come. In chapter 4, the previous chapter, the church was confronted with the reality that friendship with the world is enmity with God. The godless pursuit of stuff, respect, comfort, or position leads to a bitter end. You actually would find yourself in opposition to God. We were then called to humble ourselves before the Lord because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humility before God has been a massive emphasis in this letter. And it's no wonder since throughout the entire scriptures, it is clear that those who come before the Lord with humility are accepted. While the proud and arrogant are rejected. At the end of chapter 4, James is ramping up his indictment of all who live a proud, er, in a proud or arrogant or boastful way. Warning that those who go, go about condemning others stand in danger of the one lawgiver and judge, the Lord God, the Almighty. The tension rises further in the final verses of chapter 4 where the proud are confronted because of their arrogance before God, enjoying prosperity, success, and good fortune without ever turning their eyes to heaven in acknowledgement that there is only one sovereign Lord, that every good gift comes down from God, that he sustains everything by the power of his might, even the breath of Within us is a gift from him. To the one who treats God as an afterthought, James says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. It is at this point that the tension in this book is approaching its climax. In chapter 5, we'll hear James' final indictment of the proud and a clear picture of the ruin of those who stand in opposition to God. The main idea this morning is that the day of the Lord is at hand. And we will explore this truth through two challenges presented by James. First, James begins with a warning for oppressors to beware. This is a very sobering portion of Scripture that we're about to study this morning. And second, he calls believers to be patient in suffering. And so my hope this morning is to to show that although oppressors must beware, we can actually rejoice in this truth that the day of the Lord is at hand. 
Let's pray together as we ask God to help us to understand and to receive his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that we can trust it because it comes from you. Thank you, Lord, that I don't have to change it, that we don't have to be afraid of its message, that we can proclaim it boldly and confidently that it is true and that what you said and what you've promised, it will come to pass. God, I pray that for every believer here this morning, that these words in the book of James that you have spoken, that they would encourage our souls, that it would give us confidence and that it would give us courage to press on in our faith and not to become discouraged in well-doing. Lord, would you please bless uh, your word this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's begin by reading chapter, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 together. Keeping in mind that we have reached this climax in, this, in the book of James, the climax of James' indictment of those who live their lives in a proud and arrogant way finding themselves ultimately opposed to God. He says in verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James is writing from a historical context where the oppression of the poor by the wealthy was all too common. The corrupting influence of possessions is so prevalent that sometimes the scriptures speak of the rich and the oppressor of the poor as one and the same thing. As an example, in Luke 6, 24, Jesus states, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. It's a standalone verse. There's not a whole lot else there. However, in context, here in James and then in the other passages of Scripture that use this type of language, it is clear that these passages of Scripture are specifically rebuking those who have either attained wealth illegitimately, misused their wealth, or live for their wealth. Simply being wealthy is not a sin. 1 Timothy 6 shows us that it is possible to be a wealthy Christian. It says in verse beginning of verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They, the rich, are to do good, 
to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may not may take hold of that which is truly life. And the implication is that these are believers in the church who, who are wealthy, and he's calling them not to be deceived by these riches. Although it is possible to be a wealthy Christian, this shouldn't be seen as the exception and not the rule. God has not promised the Christian health, wealth, and prosperity. Instead, God has called the Christian to pick up his cross and follow Christ, to be willing to suffer and die with him. The judgment that God is proclaiming in James 5 is against the wealthy who live godless lives, arrogant and boastful as if they will enjoy their riches forever, as if there will be no day of reckoning. In Micah 2, we read this description of the oppressor. It's not on the screen because it's too lengthy to put on one slide, but just listen with me or turn in your Bibles if you can. It says in Micah 2 verse 1, it says, Woe to those who divide wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. With this understanding of the historical context, let's return to James Verses 1 through 3. In this context, he writes, Come now, you rich, you oppressors. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid a treasure in the last days. The miseries that are coming upon the wealthy is pointing to the future day of judgment, the day of the Lord. This judgment is so assured that James speaks as if it has already happened to them. He says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded as if it's as good as done. James is verbally shaking the lover of possessions and pointing to their rapidly approaching destruction. He is transporting them out of their self-indulgent lethargy and giving them a vision of the end result of their life. He's saying, see what is coming, taste. He says, your crops that are stored in your barns, they're as good as rotting. Your room's full of clothes, it might as well be eaten up by moths. Your gold and silver, even they will rust and corrode. You are not eternal. You are not the master of your fate. In fact, the gold and silver that is hoarded by the godless, the supposed treasure, 
will turn and condemn the person who worshiped them so affectionately. Verse 3 says that these hoarded treasures will corrode or rust in the day of judgment and that their corrosion will be presented as damning evidence against the one who held them so tightly. Then finally, the corrosion of these beloved riches will turn and torment the one who hoarded them. Verse 3 says it will eat your flesh like fire. The final verse, the final phrase in this verse shows the blindness of those who live for possessions. It says you have laid up treasure in the last days. Do you see the impending doom in this phrase? Those who have worshipped and hoarded wealth during these last days, the days we're living in right now before Christ's return, have been in fact not treasure. They've been laying up wrath, the wrath of God. Jesus says in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where are you laying up treasure? Are my thoughts, efforts, hopes, and dreams all encompassed within these 70 to 80 years of life? Do I live as if this is all there is? Can you see in your life the evidence that you are looking for a city? whose builder and maker is God. In James chapter 5, verse 4, we see that the escalation of the deceitfulness of these riches. It says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Once a person begins this journey down the road to riches, it's very difficult to stop. It's rare for the lover of money to ever say, I have enough. I'm done. I'm good. In reality, those who worship wealth or possessions will find it a very demanding idol. It is constantly demanding more. It is never satisfied. And somehow it seems to diminish in value as soon as you grasp it. This demand for wealth has driven many to defraud their neighbors. As verse 4 says, with the poor often being the easiest targets. In Deuteronomy 24, God instructed the Israelites on how they were to treat the poor in their land. Those who lived hand to mouth, depending on that day's pay simply to eat and to feed their families. It says in verse 14, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it. 
lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. The wealthy in James' day were not only failing to obey this command, but they were also delaying payment indefinitely. Sometimes maybe even just reducing the agreed upon amount of payment, giving only a portion of what was owed. These practices still happen today with the wealthy protecting their margins while the poor bear the brunt of any misfortune, struggling to survive on the scraps that are left over. Here in verse 4, James makes another reference to the idea of this idea of laying up treasure in the last days or laying up wrath. He says that the wages that were held back The payment that was hoarded illegitimately is crying out against the oppressor. This illegitimate wealth that was so important to life and happiness will in the end bring nothing but wrath. And not only that, the cries of the poor and the the oppressed, the nobodies according to this world, They have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, which means that the commander of the heavenly armies has heard their cry. This is a promise to all those who unrepentantly live as oppressors of the poor and lowly, that the commander of the heavenly armies is gearing up for battle and he is coming for you. The commander of the heavenly armies is devising disaster against you from which you cannot escape. No longer will you arrogantly strut around. Disaster is coming upon you as we saw in Micah 2. Verses 5 says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. One commentator describes verse 5 this way. James' point then, as in verse 3, is that the rich are selfishly and ignorantly going about accumulating wealth for themselves and wastefully spending it on their own pleasures in the day when God's wrath is imminently threatened. The last days have already begun. The judgment could break in at any time. Yet the rich, instead of acting to avoid that judgment, are by their selfish indulgence incurring greater guilt. They are like cattle being fattened for the kill. And that's the language that James is using in verse 5. Verse 6 pronounces the final indictment against the oppressor of the poor. It says, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James is writing with full knowledge of the stories of the Old Testament and of the suffering of his own lifetime. As you look into those pages of your Bible, it is full from beginning to end of stories where people who loved God, who simply wanted to serve him and live peaceable lives were cut down by those living in opposition to God. In Hebrews 11 we see uh, a testimony of these old, believer, uh, old Testament believers. It says they suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. 
They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Why? Why were they willing to suffer rather than deny their God? Verse 35 of Hebrews 11 says, So that they might rise again to a better life. They were willing to give up their comfort, their wealth, and freedom on this earth because they were looking to an eternal dwelling place whose builder and maker is God. These servants of God are the ones the rich have condemned and murdered. Woe to the one who is found guilty at the day of judgment of oppressing the children of God. When hearing a passage like this preached, I realize that many of us sitting here are like, glad I haven't done that. But it is important that we examine ourselves to see if even a single one of this, even if it's a speck of this, is true, if it sticks against us in any way. Have you attained wealth illegitimately? Am I misusing the possessions I have? Are any of us living for worshiping our wealth? If the Spirit of God is working in your soul right now, convicting you of any of these transgressions, then I plead with you to respond to Him in humility. Correct what is broken so that you can be healed. Restore what has been stolen. Pay what has been held back. Confess errant loves and pursue after God as your ultimate treasure. Learn from the example of Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector, a thief, and the enemy of God's people, who when he encountered Jesus, responded this way in Luke 19. It says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Jesus, he's talking to Jesus, Behold, Lord, The half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus responded in repentance. He turned from his wicked way. He agreed that he was wrong, and he turned from it. And he responded in faith. And Jesus proclaimed him saved from the wrath of the day of the Lord. As we consider this main idea that the day of the Lord is at hand, James shifts directions and speaks directly to the church, challenging us to be patient in suffering. So let's look at verse 7 through 11 together. It says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful until there. Notice the very first sentence of verse 7. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. This word, therefore, is really important because it gives the reason why we can be and must be patient in suffering. This word, therefore, points our eyes back to the verses before, the verses we just studied that potently promise that the, the commander of the heavenly armies is gearing up for battle. And he is coming to set all things right. This is reminiscent of Romans twelve nineteen, which says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord God, the Almighty, will avenge every wrong that has ever been done through the pouring out of his wrath. The cup of God's wrath, as the scriptures portray it, will either, was either poured out on Jesus at the cross on the believer's behalf, or it will be poured out on the unrighteous for all eternity. There is no other option. God will fulfill all righteousness. He will avenge every wrong and he will restore all things. And that day is at hand. It's imminent. This is the reason we can be patient in suffering. In verse 7, we see the example of the farmer who works hard, earning his bread through much toil and the sweat of his brow. But he is not instantly rewarded for his efforts. Instead, the farmer must be patient. His reward grows slowly over time, almost imperceptibly. I imagine it to be extremely discouraging at times especially for the inexperienced farmer to go to work each day only to wait and wait and wait for a return on his labor. But the experienced farmer knows that the delayed return on his investment of labor is well worth the wait. He waits patiently for it, trusting that God will provide the increase in its season. James uses this picture to encourage us not to grow weary in our pursuit of Christ here on earth. Not to become discouraged when this life is hard and difficult and it seems like the Lord is tarrying or waiting too long to bring things, everything to an end. He says in verse 8, Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. This word establish means to fix firmly, direct yourself toward, strengthen, make fast, 
or to solidly plant yourself so that there will be no faltering or falling away. We read in Luke 9 verse 51 that this is what Jesus did for us as he approached the day of his crucifixion. It says when the days drew near for him to be taken up, that means for him to return to heaven, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus knew what awaited him in Jerusalem. He knew that he was about to drink the cup of the wrath of God, the greatest suffering that had ever been experienced. But for the glory of his Father and for the salvation of his people, he set his face to go, to go to the cross. He established his heart so that he would not turn away and shrink from the path of obedience. James calls us to plant our hearts in the promises of God and his ways so that we will not be tossed back and forth by this life. For we know that the coming of the Lord is at hand. Jesus is coming back. And he will judge the living and the dead. For the believer, this is not a day to fear. This is the day of our ultimate salvation, glorification, and restoration. The day of the Lord is when Jesus will right every wrong. And all our suffering and pain will cease. If you are suffering now, be patient. Look for the coming of the Lord because it is at hand. Resist the temptation to grumble about this life. And especially don't grumble against your brothers and sisters in Christ as James warns in verse 9. When life becomes difficult, we are so often tempted to lash out at those who are closest to us. Husbands, wives, children even our brothers and sisters in Christ. In the previous chapter, we looked at length at the serious consequences of speaking evil against those in the family of God. And James here repeats the warning. Verse 9 says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. When Jesus comes, be found faithful patiently enduring suffering, not ashamed or shocked because of our current way of living when the Lord, the judge of all the earth, knocks at the door. In verse 10 through 11, James concludes with a final admonition to patiently endure suffering. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The primary point of verses 10 and 11 is this phrase, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. The blessing that is described is not necessarily earthly happiness or prosperity. Those who remain steadfast or resolute in their faith are blessed because the Lord's favor rests upon them. 
And in the end, he will abundantly reward them in his kingdom. James says to look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As an example, let's look at one of those prophets. Let's consider the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was faithful to God in an age of great rebellion and idol worship. He was sent by God to call the people of Judah to to repentance and to warn them of the wrath of God that was coming upon them for breaking the covenant with, with their God. For 40 years, Jeremiah proclaimed this message. But the rulers and the people would not listen. Instead, they, they beat him and imprisoned him and plotted against him. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because he could see the coming destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of his own people. But they stopped their ears and refused to listen to the messenger of God. Jeremiah suffered much in his life. And humanly speaking, we'd say he wasn't very successful. After all, the nation didn't turn back in repentance and faith. They actually came after him. But he is considered blessed by God. Because the favor of the Lord was upon him and his eternal reward in heaven is great. James also points our thoughts to Job. How he was steadfast in his faith when attacked with with terrible suffering. The suffering of Job is difficult to comprehend. The Bible lists that in one day he lost everything. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 1,000 oxen, 500 donkeys. This is a wealthy man who lost all of it. He also lost most of his servants, so he's has death all around him, and then he loses ten children. Shortly thereafter, his health was also taken from him, and painful sores broke out all over his body, from the bottom of his foot to the crown of his head, and this didn't just last for one day. This was prolonged physical suffering as well. I cannot comprehend the weight of this disaster in his life. I cannot adequately describe to you his pain. But even in all of this, Job refused to curse God and die, as some suggested to him that he do. Was Job perfect? No. He was a real person, and he truly struggled Emotionally, mentally, physically through his loss and pain. But as James says, Job was steadfast, clinging to the hope that God would raise him up, that God would make all things right in the end. At the end of Job's story, we see the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Job was fully restored at the end of this testing. Even in this life, he was restored. And God blessed him with even more than he had before. James points us 
to this account of Job's life. To show us that God has not forgotten his people. He sees your suffering. And because Jesus took on a body of flesh, he has felt your suffering. The final purpose of the Lord is to raise us up. To bless us with more than we could ask or think. And to bring us into his glory and share with us fullness of joy forevermore. This life is filled with many, and as James says, various kinds of suffering. But it cannot compare with the glory to come. As Paul testifies in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, We do not lose heart. Though this outer self, this body is wasting away, Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, this life, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that can be seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Can I be honest with you about my own life? I fear physical suffering when I think about it. I read the stories of the martyrs who burned at the stake as the flames licked at their bodies. Melting their skin. I think about that and I fear it. I fear persecution. I fear to suffer for the name of Christ. But when my thoughts turn that way towards fear, towards doubt, towards a fear that what will, I, what will happen in that day? Will my heart fail? Will I have enough courage I must admit, I I don't know if I do. But in Psalm 73, verse 26, it says that my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So as you are suffering, If South Africa becomes the next China and our little family here is persecuted, we're cast out of our homes, where it becomes illegal for us to even meet and to say the name of Jesus, and we start to suffer even physically, our hearts may fail. Our bodies may fail. We may run out of strength. But God is the strength of our heart. He will not fail and he will bring to completion everything, everyone that he has begun a good work in. He, if you are his child, he will not let you fall away. The day 
of the Lord is at hand. If you are a believer, you can rejoice with me about that. Our Lord is coming. Let's be found faithful, longing for his appearing. Do not be caught off guard, beating the Lord's servants, as the scripture says, mistreating one another. Don't be caught off guard, ashamed when he comes knocking. The commanders, the commander of the armies of heaven is preparing to vanquish all who stand opposed to him. The proud, the disobedient, the oppressors of his people. On the day of the Lord, his people will be eternally saved. But his enemies will have no escape. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for James chapter 5. Lord, I would never preach this sermon unless it was given to, given to us by you. Unless we were commanded to preach the whole counsel of God and not to shrink back from the truth. Lord, if any one of us are guilty to any degree of being an oppressor, of loving this world more than we love you or love your people, God, I pray that you would show us that we would mend what is broken, that we would restore what has been taken, that we would do good, that we would practice righteousness so that we can reflect all the more your glory in this broken world. And Lord, may we be found faithful when you come. We long for that day and we say, dear Jesus, come quickly. Lord, would you bless this little family? Would you do a work in us so that we will truly love one another and serve one another? We'd live with humility before God and before men. We love you. Thank you, Lord, for all you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.